Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Prepare to gag, yeah. Greetings, listeners, and welcome to Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Radio Gag is your update on how to end the horror that is the American gun violence epidemic. Your hosts today are me, Libby Edwards, and I'm Sarah Germain Lilly. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Every year, over 12 million adults are victims of domestic violence, and guns in the hands of abusers pose an even more significant threat to intimate partners and families. These killings often involve not only the partner, but children, friends, family members, pets, and even law enforcement officers. On our show today, our In Memoriam, GVP News Update, an interview with Kat Shigru Dos Santos of the New York City Anti-Violence Project, and information about enough plays to end gun violence. But first, our In Memoriam. In remembrance of Atia Kamare Fields, 26 years old, 8-20-23, Owasso, Oklahoma. Atia Kamare Fields, known as Kamare, played for Oklahoma Rage, a women's professional football team. According to police, Kamare was shot by her wife, a former Owasso elementary school teacher, and succumbed to her injury after being transported to a local hospital in critical condition. Their 10-year-old son was in the house during the shooting and is now with other family members. According to Terry and Adams, the head coach of Oklahoma Rage, who had coached Kamari for the past two years, Kamari was loved by their coaches and teammates. Kamari was not just a teammate, but also a friend whose presence on and off the field brightened our days, Oklahoma Rage shared in their remembrance. Her passion, talent, and dedication to the sport were truly inspiring. According to Adams, Kamari would get up at four in the morning to go to work and then go straight to practice until eight at night. That's just who she was. She was a hard worker, completely selfless, and put everybody above herself absolutely, said Adams. Kamari's aunt, Michaelin Vasquez, said she was just a beautiful, beautiful light. She always found the best in everyone. She was definitely goofy, but her beautiful heart is just what led up the room. Her family is just devastated. Kamari's sister, Damari Fields, said she's in shock. I wish it didn't have to be like this. She didn't deserve this. Like I said, she was a protector. She did everything for me anytime. She was my best friend and that was my everything. She said her sister had suffered abuse at the hands of her wife for years. Owasso police said that they'd been called out to the house on a previous occasion for a domestic disturbance. The couple had been married for five years, but Fields had filed for a temporary protective order back in April of 2020, citing domestic violence, harassment, and stalking. But a month later, the protective order was dismissed. Vasquez says she thinks Kamari went back because she loved her family so much. Her heart was so big that she just didn't want anyone to look at her wife in an ugly way, so I feel that's why she wouldn't talk just because she loved her wife, she said, and her love for that little boy was bigger than anything. Domestic Violence Intervention Services, DVIS, 
says that Oklahoma is now number one in the country for domestic violence and number two for domestic violence homicides. Atia Kamari Fields, we remember you. If you or someone you know is experiencing active domestic violence, please call 911 or 988 for immediate assistance. And stay tuned until the end of the program for more ways to seek help. This is Radio Gag, the Gays Against Gun Show, and now a news update on the recent horrific shooting in Lewiston, Maine, and other shootings across our country. On Saturday, October 28th, Gays Against Guns and its group of human beings, individuals dressed and veiled in white, who represent individuals killed by gun violence, walked from Columbus Circle to Times Square to mark the killing of 18 people in Lewiston, Maine. The rampage, conducted by a vet who had been recently treated for mental illness, also left 15 injured and came a few hours after the Senate voted 53 to 45 to adopt an amendment introduced by John Kennedy of Louisiana, making it easier for veterans with mental disabilities to obtain guns. Maine Senators Susan Collins and Angus King have voted against renewing the assault weapons ban. Collins also voted against a ban on high-capacity magazines that allow mass shooters to kill faster. According to Barry Graubart of Moms Demand Action, Maine has a gun violence rate of 12.6 deaths per 100,000 people, the core reason being that Maine lacks a red flag law, which permits guns to be temporarily removed from individuals who represent a threat to themselves or others. Senator Collins does not support red flag laws, but endorses the weaker yellow flag law, which takes more time to implement. In light of the shootings in his hometown, Maine's House Representative Jared Golden has stated it was time for him to, quote, take responsibility and is now calling for Congress to enact an assault rifle ban, a reversal of his previous stance. In addition to the carnage in Lewiston, there have been 12 mass shootings during the pre-Halloween weekend in Tampa, Texarkana, Indianapolis, and Chicago, resulting in 11 deaths and 76 injured. In Tampa, Florida, one of the victims was the 14-year-old son of Emmett Wilson, who in 2014 lost another son to gun violence. Since January 2023, there have been 580 mass shootings in the United States. And in California, in the wake of nationwide gun violence, conservative U.S. District Judge Roger Benitez of San Diego has once again overturned a 30-year-old state ban on semi-automatic guns. This ruling is currently being appealed. If you want to see the reinstatement of a nationwide ban on assault rifles, please contact your lawmakers and urge them to pass this essential legislation. Today, we're very pleased to welcome Kat Chagru Dos Santos, Deputy Executive Director for Programs at New York City's Anti-Violence Project. Kat also teaches in the social work department of Columbia University and has been active in the field of anti-violence for over 40 years. 
So welcome, Kat. Um, to begin with, just please give us a description of the work of uh, the Anti-Violence Project. Absolutely. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here with both of you. The Anti-Violence Project, or as we call it, AVP, has been around for over 40 years. Um, we started as a small group of volunteers in Chelsea responding to attacks against uh, LGBTQ people in Chelsea and the village, uh, predominantly around hate violence. But at about 1985, uh, the organization realized that violence was happening within the community as well as against the community. And so it incorporated work around intimate partner and sexual violence into its core work. Uh, 40 years later, we are the leading provider nationally, the largest organization that provides LGBTQ specific uh, violence response and prevention services and programs. So we work to end violence within and against LGBTQ communities and HIV affected communities. And we do that by mobilizing um, our communities and allies and through direct services, uh, a hotline, uh, training and policy advocacy and community organization, community mobilization. Okay. So, Kat, can you tell us, do the statistics on domestic violence in the LBGTQ plus community skew in any particular way? Yeah, great question. So, we know, AVP knows from our work, and we also know because there was a recent release from the federal government uh, uh, on uh, intimate partner violence and sexual violence in the country looking at sexual orientation. Um, we know that LGBTQ plus people experience intimate partner violence at the same or higher rates than cisgender heterosexual people. And that's been proven time and time again over time. The National Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs, which ABP coordinates, which is a 50 plus member organization that includes uh, uh, violence prevention and response organizations from across the country. We collected for about 20 years running, we did reports on intimate partner violence within the community and consistently found uh, a couple of things that uh, LGBTQ plus people, again, experience this violence at the same or higher rates than their cisgender heterosexual counterparts, um, that if you have other marginalized identities, like being a person of color, an immigrant, um, a person living with a disability, you actually have an escalated risk for violence. Because we think about domestic violence and intimate partner violence, and we hear about it almost always in a cisgender heterosexual context where cisgender men cause harm to their cisgender women partners and heterosexual relationships, because that's how we hear about it and talk about it, a lot of the experiences of LGBTQ plus people are invisible or erased. And so we know that uh, the statistics show us uh, that actually bisexual women experience intimate partner violence and sexual violence um, at higher rates than either lesbian or heterosexual women. Um, we know that uh, more than 50% of lesbians have experienced intimate partner violence, more than almost 70% of bisexual women. We also know um, that gay and bisexual men experience uh, intimate partner violence um, frequently. And because we think of violence, uh, uh, intimate partner violence, as soon that it happens to heterosexual women, their experiences as survivors are often completely ignored or um, misidentified. Um, 
so for instance, you know, we know that four in 10 lesbians and nearly half of bisexual women experience severe physical violence as part of intimate partner violence. Um, and 2.5 gay and bisexual men re report experiencing um, sexual violence, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner. So it is rampant in our communities, and yet we often are not talking about it. Um, the other thing I will say is that the data that just came out from the government does not talk about gender identity in the same way, does not talk about trans or non-binary or gender non-conforming people. But we know from other research and the NCAVP reports very consistently that uh, transgender, gender non-conforming and non-binary people are at elevated risk of intimate partner violence and that all forms of violence are particularly severe for trans women, particularly trans women of color and most especially black trans women. Thank you. Do guns play a significant role in domestic violence? Guns play a significant role in all violence, right? Which is why I'm talking to gays against guns today, right? <laughs> uh, gun violence is an LGBTQ issue. Gun violence is an issue specifically related to intimate partner violence. It's extremely important that we look at these connections. Um, we know that gun violence also impacts us in terms of our hate violence experiences as well. We can think about the most recent Club Q shooting last year. And we know um, that increasingly as guns become more accessible and as gun regulations are eased, um, that people who are harming their intimate partners who are using coercive control have more access to guns, which drastically increases um, the risk of lethality in intimate partner violence cases. So yes, that's a very connected issue. When it comes to reporting domestic violence, uh, there seem to be additional barriers in the LGBTQ plus community uh, when it comes to the reporting. Can you tell us why that is? Sure. Um, I think it has to do with the intersections of violence. So we know that people who experience intimate partner violence often, who are LGBTQ, often are also experiencing bias, discrimination, and hate violence. And that can take many forms uh, that, that definitely impact people's willingness or interests or capacity to report what's happening to them. So one thing is, as I mentioned before, whenever we're talking about domestic violence, nine times out of 10, we're talking about it in a very cisgender, heterosexual context. And so people who are LGBTQ and experiencing this violence don't even see themselves in that conversation. So they may not even know this is what's happening to me and uh, know where to go to report it. When folks do reach out for help, they very often are met with uh, bias, discrimination, and even violence from the people who are supposed to be helping them. That could be friends or loved ones, but it also could be uh, law enforcement or a mainstream domestic violence program or a hospital. Um, and so very often, even if people try to report what's happening to them, that report isn't accepted or acknowledged or their experience is not recognized. We hear a lot from uh, queer women who are harmed by other queer women who, when they are reporting that or trying to report that, they're told it's a cat fight, right? Um, we hear from uh, gay and bisexual men that when they're reporting it, the police are saying to them or other orgs are saying to them, this is just boys being boys, right? This is just masculine violence. We know what that is. And that's seeing it as the power and control dynamics that are part of, of uh, an intimate partner violence situation. Um, 
I know we hear from people at AVP all the time that they don't want to report because they think reporting means they have to go to the police. And many, many people in our communities, because of the criminalization of our identities as queer and trans people, uh, because if I if they also hold identities like being a person of color, being a black person, being uh, an immigrant, they may even have less trust and worse experiences of victimization by these same systems. They don't feel they're going to be helped by going to the police. So we really at ABP really stress, you can report to us. We will track that information. We will give you the support that you need and you don't have to go to the police. You can report it to us that that report will get counted. We are creating statistics and creating reports around what violence is happening within our communities so that people can feel that they're able to talk to someone who is an LGBTQ specific organization that also understands the violence they're experiencing. Something else I think that's important when we're thinking about LGBTQ people and uh, their reluctance maybe to share what's happened to them is it's always, it's difficult for any survivor in most cases to disclose what's happening, to ask for help, to report. Uh, it's very challenging. They're going through violence in their most intimate relationships in their home. Uh, they may not know who they can trust. In the case of someone who's also LGBTQ, going to someone and disclosing the violence that they're experiencing may also mean coming out around their sexual orientation or gender identity. We talked that this happens oftentimes when folks are maybe younger or who are older who may not be out uh, around their relationships. And so to say I'm experiencing intimate partner violence um, would be to reveal that I'm in a same gender relationship or that I'm trans or that my partner is trans. Um, and that may cause additional risks and may not be safe for many people, or they may not be willing to do both things at once. Imagine having to come out around your identity and around being a survivor of violence at the same time. It may simply feel like too much to do. Um, and so I think there's a lot of reasons. Another thing is AVP, we pride ourselves in being an LGBTQ specific provider of services, but also I think when people go to other places and try to report, when people aren't, aren't educated or informed around LGBTQ plus identities, a survivor who is in pain, who may be in crisis, may end up experiencing bias and discrimination and having to educate the service provider about their identities when they just need help. So all of that makes it a difficult thing. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that intimate partner violence is something that really can create a lot of shame for survivors. They feel responsible. Um, and that may be because the person who's causing them harm in the relationship is telling them it's their fault and they're internalizing that. It may be because uh, we often hear people say in our society, well, I would never let that happen to me. Um, uh, I've talked to so many survivors who have said to me, I'm so embarrassed that this happened to me. I should have known better. Um, and that's not how this works, right? But I think people really can, can deeply sit in shame and simply not want to disclose to people out of embarrassment or that shame. And if you couple that with if folks are also have internalized all of the anti-LGBTQ plus sentiment that is rampant in our world now and has been for my entire growing up as a queer person, um, and that escalating violence that is happening against us in our society, to know that's going on, the internalized experience of that can be to compound that shame as well. This is Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. You can hear us on any podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Subscribe and leave a message after you listen. And tell us what you love about Radio Gag or what really makes you gag about gun violence. 
We also urge you to get involved by joining a gun violence prevention group such as Gays Against Guns, Change the Ref, Moms Demand Action, Newtown Action Alliance, the list goes on. And in a minute, we return to Kat Chigru Dos Santos, Deputy Executive Director for Programs at NYC Anti-Violence Project. In the uh, BDSM or kink community, does domestic violence sometimes appear as sexual violence? And how do people recognize and cope with that within those communities and those relationships? Yeah, great question, Libby. Thank you so much for asking it. So AVP works um, really closely with uh, kink communities, and we consider ourselves a kink-affirming provider, which is really, really important because kink communities and LGBTQ communities have so much overlap. The Venn diagram there has a big shared shared component. Um, and so one of the things that we know um, is that actually healthy kinky relationships often are the paragon of consent. They really often demonstrate what is it like to say, this is this, these are my boundaries, this is what makes me feel good, and this is what I say no to. Um, it, it really values and prioritizes uh, people's autonomy, their capacity to set their own boundaries, um, their, uh, their bodily autonomy. And so when, it, when, that, when that works, it can be incredibly empowering. And we actually hear a lot from survivors that a healthy kink relationship has helped them work through the trauma of past experiences of power and control. That said, if folks are not honoring the consent in any relationship, that can easily become abusive. And when you pair that lack of consent with sexual um, activity, then yes, it can become sexual abuse. So it's not that kinky relationships are more likely to be abusive than non-kinky relationships, but it can be confusing for people who don't understand kink, who don't understand BDSM. Um, and so there's a lot of work and actually pretty stellar work done in the kink community. Uh, the National Alliance for Sexual Freedom has some really good sort of fact sheets on how do you tell the difference between BDSM and abuse. Um, and places like Folsom Street East um, and Folsom Street West, um, which are communities that really embrace kink, um, that also really focus on safety and healthy relationships and autonomy and consent in ways that I think can really be supportive for the community. And so I think if people are not educated about understanding BDSM and kink communities, they can mistake a healthy consensual relationship for an abusive one. And I think people in those relationships can take advantage of their partners, uh, of their play partners or their intimate partners um, by subverting consent, by not honoring consent and then saying, well, this is just part of it, right? In the same way that we see even in non-kinky relationships, very often in LGBTQ relationships where intimate partner violence and power and control are part of the dynamic, um, that an abusive partner, person causing harm in the relationship will often say things like, well, this is what, let's just say, gay sex is. Or if you were a real lesbian, you would want this. Or, you know, um, if you were a real woman or a real man, you'd want this, that kind of thing. Um, the person who's causing harm often takes the, uh, the bias and the discrimination that survivors have experienced, that we've all experienced, and uses that as a tactic of power and control. And we see that in um, all relationships, but including kink relationships. So I think it's a really important distinction to make. 
This really is uh, eye-opening and it makes so much sense when you talk about it. And just hearing boundaries, you know, specified in these ways, you know, it, it makes us safe. It, it creates, yes. a, a, as you say, a community. So now in closing, are there any additional points that you would like to make counseling opportunities at AVP, uh, the power of recognizing others in the same situation? Absolutely. All that, all of that, right? Um, I think the biggest thing, the most important thing is that you, that folks who are experiencing violence or folks who aren't sure, right? When you're in a situation that may be intimate partner violence, you may not be sure. Is it in my head? Am I imagining this? Is this really happening? Is it something I can talk about? Is it bad enough, right? So I want to make sure that anybody listening to this podcast who says, wow, maybe that's me, or maybe that's someone I care about. You can call the hotline, the AVP hotline. I'm going to say it. It's 212-714-1141, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's LGBTQ specific um, anti-violence hotline, trained counselors who can listen, support you and help you get connected to resources. AVP offers individual counseling. We offer uh, support groups for survivors of intimate partner violence and sexual violence. Um, we have legal services. We also have ways people can get involved and get active um, and be part of the anti-violence movement. Uh, we do trainings for organizations uh, and we're here to talk through uh, with folks how to be part of a solution to this type of violence. So we are all about it. We have a lot of resources on our website, which is avp.org. We just posted uh, a lot of information about intimate partner violence within queer and trans communities. Um, we have a landing page. You can go there and check it out. And uh, there's fact sheets and safety planning information. And we can really help people figure out what they need. And you can call us even if you don't want to make any decisions. Maybe you don't want to leave the relationship. You just want the violence to stop. We can help you talk through what your options are and how to build safety. We are really survivor-centered. It is about the person who's experiencing the violence and what they need. Survivors know what they need to be safe. They know what they need from us. And we they are their our guide in the work that we do. Um, I want to just make one other statement that AVP also works with people who cause harm. We work with people who say, hey, I, I've hurt my partner and I don't want to do that anymore. And I don't know why I did it. And I want to get better. Or I did it because I was hurt, but I want to figure out how not to do it. We work with people and we really believe it's important because we have a restorative, transformative justice approach and one that acknowledges the intersections of harm and identity that most of the people who are causing harm to people in their relationships have also experienced harm. So we wanna do trauma-informed work that helps people hold themselves accountable and hold one another accountable in community um, and allows them to heal from their own trauma so that the lives of survivors are improved and the lives of people who cause harm are also improved. So we believe it's important to really tackle violence in all of the ways, the people who are being hurt, the people who are causing that harm. That's why we also are really interested in systemic change that makes it easier for survivors to access services um, that make more uh, programming inclusive and affirming for LGBTQ communities to lessen the criminalization of our communities and to help us all stand up for one another um, and be better allies to one another and community members. And so we also do upstander trainings that include elements of, of information about how to help folks who are experiencing intimate partner and sexual violence. So reach out. We are here to help for sure. 
Well, thank you so much. And we are going to have a list on our podcast site and at the end of the program of organizations and hotlines you can reach out to to help yourself if you need it or help others if they need it. Thank you again, Kat. This has just been so informative and eye-opening. Thank you both. You are listening to Radio Gag and part two of our podcast for LGBTQ plus IPV for Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Domestic violence, also referred to as intimate partner violence or IPV, dating abuse or relationship abuse is a pattern of behaviors used by one partner to maintain power and control over another partner in an intimate relationship. If you are being abused by someone in your household or community, there are organizations that stand ready to help. If a threat is imminent, call 911. You can reach AVP at avp.org slash get dash help. Hotline 212-714-1141. AVP also has walk-in appointments from 1 to 4 p.m. Monday through Thursday at 116 Nassau Street, third floor. New York State Coalition Against Domestic Violence Hotline, New York State, 1-800-942-6906. Hotline, New York City, 1-800-621-621. 4673. The National Domestic Violence Hotline, 800 799 SAFE or 7233. Their site is full of information that helps people understand and recognize domestic abuse. Also, through their website, thehotline.org, you can connect by untraceable internet chat and text, as well as locate resources available in your state. Please see our podcast page for additional resources. Enough plays to end gun violence at Theater for the New City, November 6th. Despite the horror and revulsion we feel when we hear about mass shootings like the ones that occurred this weekend, young people and children are terribly impacted by our bloody insistence on the proliferation of arms. Gun violence, including unintentional shootings, are now the leading cause of death in children and youth, more than car accidents, more than drug overdoses. What if young people everywhere in the U.S. cried out on stages large and small across America begging for peace and an end to the epidemic of gun violence they live in. Would we listen? Would we finally change the bloody status quo? On November 6, 2023, our audiences across our country will see enough plays to end gun violence. The theater project Michael Cody founded to amplify the voices of young playwrights. For tickets and information, go to theaterforthenewcity.net. You can also visit enoughplays.com to find a production near you, one night only, November 6, 2023.
To find out more about working with us, please go to gaysagainstguns.net or follow us at Gays Against Guns New York on Facebook and Instagram or Gag No Guns on Twitter. We meet once a month at the LGBTQ Center on 13th Street in Manhattan and on Zoom. Please email gagsignup at gmail.com. That's G-A-G-S-I-G-N-U-P at gmail.com. And we'll provide you with a Zoom link and details for our next meeting coming up in November. And all meetings are held at 7 p.m. Everybody is welcome at any and all gag events. And you can donate to Gays Against Guns. Currently, we are producing a documentary about Gays Against Guns by filmmaker Paul Rowley and preparing for the National Gun Violence Vigil on December 6, 2023. You can contribute any amount on our webpage, gaysagainstguns.net. It's time to end our show. Thanks for listening. We are back with a new episode almost every week. Upcoming shows will feature a series on the economic and social costs of gun violence. And don't forget, you can listen to our previous shows anytime on any major podcast platform. Our shows are also featured on Brick, Brooklyn Free Speech Radio. Please subscribe to our podcast so you'll be notified when new shows drop. We leave you with our fabulous singing quartet. Sing out, Louise. Well, I think it would be nice if we could break your lobby. Cause no, not every lobby knows how to lobby like you. No. And you never think twice before you take our dreams away. Well, we say the NRA and all the cash you blew. Oh, yeah, you bought a Congress for 20 million. And then the White House, 30 million more. Well, you can spend your heart out a billion, zillion. We don't care about your money. We are showing you the door. Because we got to have faith. We got to have faith. Oh, yeah, we got to have faith, the faith, the faith. We got to have faith, the faith, the faith. Baby, we won't go back to yesterday. So please, 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 sashay away. You are giving us the blues. Maybe we're gonna break the money chain. Then we won't have to feel the pain of another day loaded down with a lot of bad news. Just watch this river become an ocean. Listen, do you hear that mighty roar? Yeah, baby, we'll keep resisting your evil notions. We have had it up to here, and we are showing not one more. Cause you gotta have faith. We gotta have faith. Oh yeah, we gotta have faith, the faith, the faith. We gotta have faith, the faith, the faith. Ah.